the welcome that Mr. Tons has given you all and also, as he did, to thank you very much for coming this evening and supporting this annual meeting on behalf of the Bible League. We always, as you know, have two meetings at this time of year and in this part of the country, uh, Watersham on the Thursday evening and uh, Chelmsford or Gallywood here the Friday and it's a great privilege to have my turn again this year to conduct these two meetings or to speak at these two meetings. Now the table at the very back there has some Bible League literature on it and uh, do please take a moment afterwards to look at these and I wonder if I could just draw your attention to a few items. Uh, just to say that um, sample uh, issues of the Bible League Quarterly, our official magazine, plus any other leaflets or booklets on the table will be free, but the more substantial items are um, uh, charged for, but um, remarkably cheaply, given the uh, size and quality of what we're offering here. I mean, this book, for instance... This consists of uh, the best articles from the Bible League Quarterly from fairly early on up until the early 1980s. And they have been arranged in, uh, they have been classified under certain subjects. So you have a compendium of articles on various aspects of truth. And this has been much appreciated. I suppose really it represents the best of what the magazine has put out prior to the 1980s. Now we have a limited quantity of these left. Every uh, new Bible League meeting sees a few of them go and eventually there will be none left. And then it will be a collector's item. And then you'll find that you'll have to pay about £60 on eBay to get one. What am I offering it to you this evening as this limited edition volume? Well, £20 would be cheap at WH Smith's for a book this size and quality. £10 would be giving it away. But we can let you have it this evening for £5. So if you would like a copy, we've only got two tonight, but if you've got a five or spare then this would make an excellent book for yourself if you haven't already got it, or as a present for someone else. Now, a particular lady bought one for uh, her grandchildren last evening for a fiver. That's an excellent idea. So two left, so uh, don't let them be taken home again without you benefiting from them for five pounds. This book, by our good friend Alan McGregor, has been out for quite a while now, but it has an enduring value simply because the subject will not go away in our generation. In fact, it will probably not go away until our Lord's return. The problem of modern uh, Bible translations, modern unfaithful and dangerous Bible translations, three of them are critically assessed very, very uh, competently and yet in popular language, the New International Version, the English Standard Version, and the New King James Version. I suppose they are the three main 
new uh, modern Bible translations in use by evangelicals and reformed Christians these days. Uh, the new, new International Version appeared in 1978 and until that date the authorised version really enjoyed uh, the dominance among believers. Uh, most Christians used the authorised version prior to that time. A few might have used the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, some even the Revised Version, some the Derby Translation and so on. But really, until 1978, the uh, supremacy of the authorised version sadly came to an end, or began to come to an end. And everyone wanted the NIV and thought it was such a marvellous translation. What they didn't realise was, fast forward a few years, and you'll find that an NIV with gender neutral words will be in it. So instead of mankind, it's humankind, and that kind of thing which just panders to the spirit of the age and its feminism shows how much reverence they have for the sacred text, doesn't it? If they can render it like that. So this is critically assessed. The uh, English Standard Version, the New King James Version. Now that is often <laughs> considered perhaps the best of the bunch because at least it's supposed to be based on the received text. But of course the trouble is, it isn't in every case. And you've got those cursed footnotes at the bottom which say um, other manuscripts omit these verses and so on. And so you've still got doubt cast upon the uh, sufficiency of the word of God because um, questions are raised as to, well, is this little group of verses in the scriptures or not? And with, uh, in one place where the promotional material was appearing concerning the NKJV, it actually said there are footnotes included at the bottom referring to other manuscripts so that the, the reader can delete uh, these verses if he wishes. Now what a thing. And what view of the scriptures does that represent? if you can delete parts of it, because other manuscripts don't have certain verses in the New Testament. It amounts to about 3% of the whole New Testament called into question in that way. So that needs to be stated. The ESV, English Standard Version, now that is probably gaining ground now over NIV and NKJV. If you look at um, the Banner of Truth, Trusts, Publications, Many of the authors who are published now by that um, um, publishing house are based on the ESV. seems to be the great choice among reformed believers. Of course, what it is, it's really only an update of the RSV. And um, various changes made. But the same problems that belong to the NIV belong to the ESV. And we need to know about these things, dear friends, and I'm sure you know something of these matters. If you don't have this book, do get it, because it really is a very helpful resource to be able to know why 
the authorised version is the most accurate and most reliable and most faithful translation of the scriptures into English and why these other ones are not and it can help other people to understand these issues as well so £2 for the paperback £4 for the hardback really are um, giving them away this evening but we want to do that because this is vital literature that is not found um, very often from other sources is it just a word quickly about our official magazine, the Bible League Quarterly. Um, as I said at Watersham last evening, the best way to support the work and witness of the Bible League is to become a subscriber and to join us. And then you get the magazine, of course, sent free four times a year. The cost is £8 a year. And uh, if you do that, uh, that would be a great help. What tends to happen is that um, subscribers loan their copies to others and they get read and so on and passed around and we probably have many more readers than we do have subscribers. Well, we're glad for readers, but subscribers are ideal. So if you're not one and would like to become one, take a sample co copy, all the details on the inside front cover and we would appreciate very much your standing with us now the 3rd of May 1892 is not likely to go down in history as the most auspicious date in the long history of the church it's not on a par with the Protestant Reformation 1517 not on a par with anything during the Puritan period. Not on a par with anything in the Evangelical Awakening of the 18th century. But it does represent a significant date that marked a significant thing. And the Kingdom of God advances by giant steps and it also advances by small steps. And 3rd of May 1892 was a small step. But that was the date when the Bible League was founded. In London, at an inaugural meeting, attended by very, very many people. Very many concerned people. Because by then, as you know, the downgrade uh, was uh, going on apace, which had come to a height particularly in the 1880s, and C.H. Spurgeon, with prophetic insight, could see that what he called the downgrade, and used other terms to describe it, was no, none other than unbelief and rebellion against God and his truth coming to the fore and undermining confidence in the scriptures and in pretty well all the fundamental doctrines of the word of God. People at the time were saying, we still believe in all the essential truths of historic Christianity. But they need to be adjusted and modified so that they can appeal more to the scientifically enlightened generation of which we are a part. So if we just say that creation was not in six literal 24-hour days, 
but that we can accommodate the millions of years uh, demanded by evolution in those early chapters of Genesis if we don't say that it's a literal Adam and Eve but that this, these were two people uh, of a parabolic kind of allegorical nature to teach us what's happened to us and so on and if we are modifying the just and so on and make concessions of this kind then people will be more likely to take our Christianity seriously of course what happened was you had a Bible shorn of its divinity and supernaturalness and just a wonderful religious book written by wonderful people now let me give you a flavour of the kind of things that these theological liberals were saying uh, I quoted this last night at Watersham but I do so again this evening because we perhaps are not aware of the sheer viciousness of the attacks that were made upon uh, the verities of God's word back then uh, in the latter part of the 19th century this is a quote from an article that was written in a Christian periodical uh, in the 1880s listen to this we are now at the parting of the ways and the younger ministers especially must decide whether or not they will embrace and undisguisedly proclaim that modern thought which in Mr. Spurgeon's eyes is a deadly cobra while in ours it is the glory of the century it discards many of the doctrines dear to Mr. Spurgeon and his school not only as untrue and unscriptural but as in the strictest sense immoral for it cannot recognise the moral possibility of imputing either guilt or goodness or the justice of inflicting everlasting punishment for temporary sin it is not so irrational as to pin its faith to verbal inspiration or so idolatrous as to make its acceptance of a true trinity of divine manifestation cover polytheism it's saying here it's speaking of uh, Mr. Spurgeon and his followers who were uh, holding the line and contending for the faith uh, as really outmoded and uh, dinosaurs as people would say the Bible League is today in our generation and saying that what they represented was untrue and unscriptural even immoral and that um, pinning your faith to verbal inspiration is irrational and that the trinity means that you believe in three gods and is polytheism it's absolutely dreadful isn't it it really is a rejection of the verities of revealed religion as recorded infallibly in Holy Scripture and this is what Spurgeon was fighting against now of course not, not all people expressed it this way I suppose the majority of ministers and Christians made concessions to this hostility and uh, you still used evangelical language which made it very subtle and made people think well it's only just adjustment and concession here or there but underlying it 
was nothing more than unbelief and rebellion against the God of truth and the beginnings of apostasy. And Spurgeon quite correctly predicted that if this goes on, the land will be littered with empty and derelict churches and chapels and that the faith will largely depart from the land. Now who was right? The liberals called it the glory of the century. This is how we conserve the truth. This is how we win the present generation and keep it for the future. Spurgeon says it's wicked apostasy and it's going to be destructive and it's going to be catastrophic in the, in the losses it's going to produce. Well, he was right. But very few agreed with him in his day. And we see, don't we, the, um, the evidences of what Spurgeon said in, in our Principality of Wales. In the north of Wales, where we are, you can go to villages and small towns and you can see huge stone-built chapels. Huge structures. And you wonder how a village population would have been enough to fill those great edifices. But they were. And now what are they? Carpet warehouses. Dwellings. Heritage centres. Nightclubs. They're gone. And it's liberalism that has emptied these places and over the generations has caused such a falling away and such a treacherous apostasy that uh, we've come to where we are today. Only recently in a small village about two and a half miles from Hollywell where we are, Alpha Chapel, lovely uh, red bricks built building there just at the, by the roadside. Two of our older people at Hollywell, now gone to glory, well the husband is, we don't know, about the, we don't know where the wife stood so clearly, but uh, anyway, they were married there in 1935, Alpha Chapel, and then it closed a few years ago, and now it's been made into flats, very desirable flats, and there are for sale signs outside for these modern flats. What emptied that place? Liberalism. Monuments to the wickedness of liberalism. And so the Bible League stood against these things and in the words on, found on the back of every magazine, every issue, it says that since 3rd of May 1892 the League has sought to encourage believing and reverent Bible study and to resist attacks made upon the inspiration, inerrancy and sufficiency of God's word. Because you see, liberalism hasn't gone away. It's still with us in various forms. And it's really, in a way, ha has uh, diversified and taken on new shapes and ways. And modern Bible translations one of these because you see if you believe that you can paraphrase the word of God in man's language and also please feminists by putting gender neutral terms so you avoid man and anything masculine then 
you're saying the Bible is just like any other book and you can render it accordingly if you believe that uh, you can put footnotes at the bottom of the page and say other manuscripts don't have these verses so if you want you can delete them well the Bible is just like any other book isn't it and the ESV the same 3% of the New Testament less in the ESV that's the equivalent of 1 and 2 Peter missing from the New Testament just like any other book that's liberalism and so you see the Bible League doesn't hold to the AV simply because we uh, are oldies and just love something old there are vital issues at stake in this the word of God and our view of scripture itself other things like the charismatic movement and its corrupt worldly worship and its worldly lifestyle often has to be resisted because again it's liberalism if the word of God is not normative and in fact regulative for everything then other things will be and of course in the case of the charismatic movement it's experience isn't it and liberation and the so called spirit which is really just the flesh working away and so it's back to the Bible and you must rebut that as well and we've hardly time to mention Roman Catholicism and ecumenism and all these other manifestations of liberalism but we uh, contend against them and we contend for uh, the word of God and biblical and historic Christianity and remember we are in uh, well near Spurgeon country aren't we as we came along toward this place this evening we saw the sign for Kelvedon where he was born and it's good to think that Spurgeon himself I'm sure would have been glad to have been a member of the Bible League because uh, it's Spurgeonic it continues the fight continues what he contended for and we're thankful to be able to do so and let people say oh well John Thackway he's authorised version TBS reverent worship and all those things he's just a hundred years out of date and all the people at the Bible League are as bad as he is and so on well let them say that they said it about Spurgeon and he was vindicated and they say it about us we'll be vindicated too because we're on the side of what is right the word of God and the right ways of the Lord and Spurgeon also said didn't he I'm prepared to be eaten by dogs for the next 50 years but the more distant future will vindicate me and here we are this evening doing that very thing not eating him like dogs but vindicating the stand he made and thank God for everyone who sees these issues clearly we're not saying that only Bible League supporters are right there are plenty of other people in the land who believe the same as we do as well we thank God for that but at least we can represent this position as uh, supporters this evening well let's think about Isaiah 55 in this connection then just for the rest of the time that we have available to us and you'll know won't you 
that by the time we get to Isaiah 55, the prophet has become clearer and clearer in uh, setting forth Christ crucified, the heart of the gospel. Isaiah 53, that wonderful chapter which reads more like history than prophecy. It's almost out of the Gospels, isn't it? He was despised and rejected of men, and so on. Isaiah 54, it's about the church of Christ and the coming in of the Gentiles to that church, as in the Acts of the Apostles, the Gospel into all the world. And then here in Isaiah 55, it's the covenant of grace that God made with his Son, and with an elect people in him that's called the everlasting covenant, verse 3, the sure mercies of David. And we're not surprised therefore to find in this chapter promises regarding the success of the gospel. Verses 10 and 11. As the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Dear friends, if God has appointed his son a people, he has appointed the means whereby those people shall be called out to believe on his son. And the word is the great instrument, isn't it? The word of God has been called the executive instrument whereby the Lord uh, quickens dead sinners, brings them to faith in his beloved son and makes them wise unto salvation. And so, promise, promises, prophecies concerning the success of that word. And I want us particularly to look at verse 11 We've quoted it so many times, haven't we? It's so relevant to our purpose this evening. That God's word shall not return unto him void. Because it is divine. Because it is eternal truth. Because it is that which God uses in the saving of souls and in the edification of the church. It will never return to him void every time it goes forth in preaching, on tracts, Bibles given out, verbal witness, and so on. It shall accomplish that which I please, he says, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it, and also in the things that we do on its behalf regarding the Bible League. Let's look first of all at a comparison. Verse 11. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It looks back to verse 10, doesn't it? Now here's the metaphor. As the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and does not return uh, in evaporation until it has wet the earth, germinated seed and brought forth a harvest. The rain and the snow from heaven never fails of its purpose, does it? Every harvest thanksgiving will bear testimony to that. 
And that's exactly how my word will be, he says, who goes forth out, which goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but shall accomplish what he pleases, prospering in the thing whereto he sends it. Notice the language here in this comparison, how the word is pictured. The rain coming down and the snow from heaven. That's like Deuteronomy 32 verse 2. My doctrine shall drop as the rain. And it's saying, isn't it, it's from God himself. Verse 10. Cometh down from heaven. And verse 11. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It's stressing the fact that every time the word of God is read, every time the word of God is preached, every time it is sent forth in any form, God is the one who speaks it. Like Calvin said, preachers are the very mouth of God. Well, if we listen to preachers in that way, wouldn't we be all ears? And wouldn't we be begging the Holy Spirit to give us ears to hear indeed? Where the word of God is honestly, sincerely preached, God is preaching. God is speaking to us. I think it was Thomas Watson who called the Old Testament and the New Testament the two lips whereby God speaks to us. And dear friends, God is never nearer than when in preaching. You see, look at verse 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. As the word goes forth, God draws near. As his word is heard, it's God's very voice in that word. The presence of the Lord in the word. Going with the word. Oh, that it might be so. The Lord owns it. It's from him. Now you see the different effects. Likened to rain and snow. Verse 10. Two forms of water aren't they? That wet the ground. Germinate the seed and produce the harvest. Two ways that God works. The rain. Comes straight onto the ground. Saturates the soil. And pretty quickly. First the blade, then the ear, then the full corn, isn't it? The snow lies on the surface and stays there. And when it melts, eventually it saturates the, the ground and does that work. And the word of God, these two effects, different effects. Sometimes like the rain, very soon God gives the increase. And someone is quickened. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And they do call upon the Lord while he may be found, and while he is near. And they're saved pretty quickly. Other times, settling down like the snow. Staying there. Nothing much seems to be happening. And after some time, we find that God has saved John 12 and verse 11 we read there by reason of him 
Lazarus, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Not at the time. They went away. And as you see them go away, you think, ah, unbelieving, unaffected, unblessed. Ah, but they went away and believed on Jesus at a later time. And that's an encouragement, isn't it? Just because you don't see immediate results. Mm -hmm. It could be that they'll go away. And in God's appointed time later, they will believe on Jesus. Now we had a very nice illustration of this in our church at Hollywell. We have a family who've been in the church for many, many years. And um, the daughter of the family, one of the daughters, she's about 17. And she came and asked for baptism just recently. And so when I spoke to her, I said, how long have you been a Christian? Oh, about, about um, one and a half years. It was when someone else was baptised. It seemed as if the Lord had done her work and she'd been a Christian. Uh, not a very long time. But the word had a very quick effect. And she'd been brought out. And lo and behold... The father, knowing that the daughter wants baptism, I get an email from him confessing that he's been a secret disciple for many years and now he must come out and confess the Lord and he wants to be baptised as well. And he's, I've been a Christian for years. But it was a slow work. It had happened over a long... He's 52 and she's 17. So you see, it can happen quickly it can happen over a long period of time. And that's the way sometimes the Lord is pleased to work. So be encouraged about that. Because God is sovereign in his working, isn't he? And this comparison assures us that the word is from him. And the effects of it will be according to his timing. Sometimes quick, sometimes after a long time. Let's look secondly at the guarantee. My word shall not return unto me void. And the great encouragement, dear friends, is that God, if I may put it reverently, does not waste his word. It will not come back to him empty. Any more than the rain and the snow evaporates by the sun and goes back up into the sky, having not fulfilled its purpose of bringing forth the harvest. Remember Samuel, 1 Samuel 3.19 And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and did let none of his words fall to the ground. This is always the case. God's word is too precious to be just left where it is and to be forgotten about. You remember in, in John chapter 6 when Jesus fed the 5,000 and there were those 12 baskets of fragments and he commanded that the bits left over that littered the ground he said gather them up in baskets that nothing be lost. Well if bread and fish are too precious to be just wasted but must be gathered up and not lost how much more the bread of life the Lord Jesus and his word 
that will not be lost and wasted. It shall not return to the Lord void. That's a great encouragement when you give out a tract, when you give a Bible away, when you preach, when you witness, whenever the word is going forth. God treasures this because it's his own utterance. It comes down from him. His word that goes forth out of his mouth. Through preachers, through human instruments, yes. But too precious to be lost. Will not return to him empty of effect. Now, can we prove this? How is this fulfilled? Because surely... Surely we see so little results comparatively after all the preaching, after all the uh, dissemination of the word. Well, dear friends, let me just prove it for our encouragement. It will always fulfil its purpose and it's put positively now, isn't it? Look, there in second part of verse 11 it shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Shall accomplish, shall prosper. Definitely. No doubt about it. But how is that so every time? Well, first of all, in the conversion of elect sinners, of course. We've said that, haven't we? Because this everlasting covenant that God has made with his Son and the people chosen in him, every one of them will be brought out. There's a time and a place, isn't there, for the conversion of every elect vessel of mercy. And in that case, of course, the word is not returning to God void. It does accomplish what he pleases and prospers in the thing whereto he sent it. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. Well, that's self-evident, the conversion of sinners. But secondly, in the blessing of God's people, Hebrews 6 and verse 7, the apostle there uh, puts it like this. The earth which drinketh in the rain that oft that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. The context is, you see, bringing forth the fruits of God's grace, proving that you're not apostate. And it's true, isn't it, that God's word comes to us like the refreshing rain, and like the refreshing snows, and more happens than we know. The story is told of a local preacher who had preached many sermons in many places during his life. And, and uh, after he died, his relatives found that he had neatly tied up the sermons he had delivered and placed a card on top of them with this inscription. Where has the influence gone of all these sermons I have preached? That's a good question, isn't it? What's come of them all? And beneath 
he scribbled in large letters over. And on the other side of this label this answer was found. Where are last year's sun rays? They have gone into fruits and grain and vegetables to feed mankind. Where are last year's raindrops? Forgotten by most people of course but they did their refreshing work and their influence still abides. So too these sermons have gone into lives and made them nobler, more Christ-like and better fitted for heaven. Dear friends, that must be true. More is done than we know. It's not our work. It's the Lord's work. It's the Holy Spirit's moving in hearts and honouring and blessing the truth as it goes forth. You can't quantify it. It's too big to quantify. But if we could see it all, we would be absolutely amazed at the aggregate of what has been accomplished. God's word does not return to him void. It does prosper in that which he pleases and in the thing whereto he sends it. In all of his own people who receive the word of God. Thirdly, in the hardening of the reprobate. You've got these solemn words in Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, where Isaiah's commission, oh, what a commission. Isaiah 6, 9, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. In other words, Isaiah, most of your preaching is only going to harden hearts in stronger more inveterate unbelief. Much of your preaching is just going to send people into the Babylonian captivity and into judgment. Gives a new perspective on faithfulness, doesn't it? What is faithfulness? It's not necessarily success. It's doing what God has said. And the effects of his word in many cases perhaps will be to seal the doom of the unbelieving and the reprobate. To leave them with no excuse on the day of judgment. To show that God is righteous. To say that the saviour they rejected has become their great sin. The sin of unbelief Blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. Resisting the overtures of grace in the gospel to such an extent that God gives them up. And that's the word. It must have that effect. And the word must go forth and be heard and must be responded in that way, responded to in that way so that on the day of judgment it will be seen that God is just 
as well as merciful. And no condemned sinner on that day will ever be able to say, well, I didn't know. Because the answer will be, you didn't know. And the word, John 12, verse 48, the word that I have spoken unto you will judge him on that day. The word will be the witness for the prosecution. Now, are you unconverted tonight? Are you an unconverted person? Do you see how serious a business it is to hear the word of God with reverence and to pray that the Lord will seal it to your softening so that you are given a soft heart, a teachable spirit, a submissive will. So by that word, you are brought as a sinner to Jesus, made wise unto salvation through faith in Him. Don't reject it. Don't suppress good impressions. Don't put the word from your mind. Don't imagine that it's just the sound of a, another sermon, just another preacher doing his bit. Remember, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. These are serious words. And these apply to everyone who is responsible, addressed as responsible sinners. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy. There's mercy for you if you will come to the Lord and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. If you have a margin Bible the margin uh, rendering is he will multiply to pardon. If you've got multiplied sins there's multiplied pardon in the blood of Jesus Christ for you. If you have mountainous sins, then the mercy of Jesus will rise infinitely higher than that mountain. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And if you say, well I can't figure that out. I can't understand that. Well look, verse 8. My thoughts, says God, are not your thoughts. And your ways are not my ways. This is something that doesn't belong to this world. It's heavenly. It's, 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 it's wholly other. It's amazing and astonishing that God should have mercy in Jesus for the vilest sinners. And that this, uh, this message of the gospel has a freeness and in which God sincerely invites you. Repentance toward God faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ but I tell you if you reject it and harden your heart then the day of grace for you will be over at some point you'll cross over the line and it'll be too late so while he may be found while he is near now is the day of salvation now is the accepted time but I tell you, I tell anyone that if you reject this gospel then you seal yourself up into your own unbelief and God will confirm it but this gospel will not have been preached in vain 
and this word will not have returned to him void. It will have accomplished that which he pleases, and it, shall, and it will have prospered in the thing whereto he sent it. But oh, isn't it solemn that its success is in our condemnation? But it will be to the glory of God's justice. As surely as when it has a saving effect, it is to the glory of God's grace. And then fourthly, it's blessing for future generations. In verse 10 there, look, you see, um, the rain coming down, the snow from heaven, returning not thither, but watering the earth, making it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower. Of course, each harvest time, you get the grains, and they become the seed for next year's harvest, don't they? And bread to the eater, the rest of them are ground into flour, milled into flour, and baked into bread. So you see, it's uh, benefiting um, the future. The future harvest, as well as the present uh, bread, flour. And that's the word of God when it goes forth, because you see, it's benefiting the future generations. Seed to the sower. The fact is, every generation that reverences God's word, every generation of faithful preachers, every faithful Christian society that stands for right things, we hand it on, don't we, to a future generation. And we trust that there will be those who will come after us who will be holding Bible League meetings in 30, 40, 50 years' time, when probably most of us are gone, gone to glory, we trust. And there'll be others, it'll be seed to the sower, there'll be uh, seed sown, and there'll be a harvest of good things for the future time. I do trust it will be so. It's nice to see younger ones here this evening, and may you be helped to serve your generation by the will of God, as we trust God has helped us to do uh, in our time. Many of us are getting older, aren't we? Getting older and older and older. Not that we feel it, at least not inside, but um, we are getting older. We won't always be here. I don't know how much longer I shall edit the Bible League Quarterly. I started in January 1993. And just go on and on, year after year. It's a labour of love. And as long as God gives me strength, uh, an ability, I'm glad to do it it's a, it's a joy to do it but one day it will be said that there's a new editor of the Bible League Quarterly and this old dinosaur that's been associated with it for 20 years or so will be no more someone else will take his place we trust and so we pray that there will be future editors of this magazine and future trustees and future speakers on its behalf and so on if the work is of God he will preserve it our forefathers in 1892 they could have no conception of how things would go for the future could they they hoped that they laid the foundation for something that would last and would conserve Spurgeon's testimony and stand and maintain it for future generations. Well, they did. And under God, the Bible League has not moved one iota from its founding principles. 
And may it never do so. And may God give us, as it were, seed to the sower. Future harvests of blessing to come. But at the end of the day, dear friends, let me close with this. It is the pleasure of God, isn't it? I like that phrase. Verse 11. It shall accomplish that which I please. And God is so pleased with his word. I mean, what a word. What a Bible this is, isn't it? I said last evening uh, at Watersham and everyone knew what I meant. My dear Mr. Hawkins, at Watersham for nearly 40 years, preaching, preaching, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, weeknight meeting after weeknight meeting, and all the other places he preached at, right to the end of his life, when he died at 77 years old in 2003. No stale sermons. Always fresh. Always blessed. Always gracious and savoury and applied and experimental and fruitful. And Mrs. Hawkins said to me afterwards, she says, thank you for mentioning my dear Gordon, she said. I went into his study once, he held up the Bible, he said, my dear, he said, I could preach from this for a hundred years and it would never, ever be stale. So even better than the 40. It's true. You can spend a lifetime preaching this word. There's a fullness, an infinite fullness about it. You'll never get to the bottom. It's inexhaustible. God is pleased with his word. It's eternal truth. Forever settled in heaven. And, in, uh, and revealed and inspired and inscripturated upon earth and preserved and translated in the authorised version. And it's his pleasure. And he will not allow it to go to waste. Not return to him having failed in any degree. We walk by faith and not by sight, dear friends. There is no sense in which we say, ah, well, that was a failure, wasn't it? That came to naught. That's fruitless. This word doesn't allow you to say that. Either in the conversion of elect sinners, either in the blessing of God's people, either in the hardening of the reprobate, either in blessing for future generations, or in the general good pleasure of his word, that he will see, prosper, and be glorified. This promise is always fulfilled. God would sooner lose his infinite being than any one of his promises fail. So take heart and believe that even just quoting one verse of scripture in any context you do something that has eternal repercussions, mm. eternal significance. Oh, what a privilege to be entrusted with the word of God. May we love it more. May we defend it more. Not that it really needs defending, but you know what I mean. May we not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord in our day. And may we be those who stand for the right and the best things 
And thank God for the Bible League and every such organisation that has these things at its core and its heart. Well, may God bless his word and bless his work. Amen.